You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. We will learn more about his worthiness today. We come to one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament. But while some of the details of this difficult text may elude our immediate understanding, I can assure you that we will not miss the main thrust of what Peter is communicating to you and me today. It's 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in your worship folder. I'm going to ask you if you're able to please stand one more time for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, I think we need to ask for the Lord's help here, uh, this difficult text. So let's, uh, let's pray. Ask for his presence and his power. Lord, I pray now that you would help me to communicate clearly and truthfully and help all of us, including the preacher, to take your word to heart and so think and live in a way that is in sync with who you are and how you act. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In recent years, you may have heard someone say something like, I don't recognize my country anymore. Have you heard that? Maybe you've said it. Uh, In fact, I recently came across a song uh, that repeats that refrain. Let me read a verse of it to you and the chorus. song goes, I'm holding on to yesterday, but yesterday is slipping away. I wish we were all together on the road our forefathers paved. Now the chorus, I don't know my country anymore, and the changes I have seen I can't ignore. When the leaders lose the common trust, Lord knows what's in store for us. I don't know my country anymore. I don't know my country anymore. Well, what do you hear in those words? Um, Besides sort of that wistful longing for the good old days, uh, which were old, but generally not as good as we remember them. Um, I hear fear and uncertainty and regret and discouragement. That song comes from someone on the political right, but people on the left uh, are saying the same thing. In fact, I Googled uh, this week, I Googled, I don't know my country anymore. I don't recognize my country anymore. And, and, I got as many sort of essays or articles about that from the political left uh, as I did from the political right. Uh, everyone uh, is, is saying the same thing. I don't know my country anymore, saying it for different reasons. And they're reacting, though, in the same ways. Fear, whether you're on the right or the left, fear, uncertainty, regret, discouragement. And we as Christians, of course, wherever we fall on the political spectrum, are not immune. Um, we feel these changes and, 
And sometimes those changes seem disorienting, right? Uh, There is no question that we are uh, being increasingly uh, pushed to the margins, increasingly viewed suspiciously because of our faith, uh, perhaps discriminated in, in, in the marketplace, for example, for our faith in Jesus. And uh, all of that is for us with, uh, troubling and, and disorienting. And the reaction to it, again, whether you're on the right or the left, the, the typical reaction to it is typically American, right? Let's fix it. Let's fix the problem. Let's make the country into something that feels more like home, that feels safe. Now, I am not saying that that's illegitimate. It's not illegitimate. But for Christians, that mission of fixing the country is not our primary mission. The reality, as as Peter has reminded us before in this letter already, this isn't our home. It doesn't feel like home because it isn't our home, right? We are, uh, as followers of Jesus, Peter says, resident aliens here. And therefore, we should expect to suffer. We should expect to be discouraged. We should expect persecution and discrimination because of our faith in Jesus. The line right before this text, uh, Peter is saying, Look, uh, you're going to suffer for doing good. Sometimes it's going to be God's will for you to suffer for doing good as a believer. You see, this, this points up what our primary mission is. Not our only mission, but our primary mission as the people of Jesus. And our primary and bigger mission is what Jesus told us to pray for every day, which is the coming of his kingdom right? The coming of his country, if you will, right? Thy kingdom come. Jesus says, pray that every day. Well, we don't just pray it. We, we, we get involved in that process because that's where our primary citizenship is based. And one thing that Peter makes clear here, and we'll, we'll talk more about it is that when, when that kingdom comes and, 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 it hasn't yet come. It hadn't come in Peter's day. It hasn't come yet fully in our day. When it does fully come, it's also going to involve the coming of God's judgment. The coming of the kingdom, which is good news for us, is also the coming of judgment. Every human being will at that point face God and be called to account And depending upon whether you acknowledge Jesus as Lord will determine the verdict you receive in that judgment. This is is the human dilemma, right? Fundamentally, you know, get beyond all of the issues, economic, uh, you know, ecological, uh, sociological. Beyond all of those problems, the fundamental problem is that we are alienated from God. We've got a God problem. And, and, and left to ourselves, we face the judgment of God. Uh, that's why our primary mission can't be to, quote, fix the country, right? Because millions of people could be living in a country that feels like a safe home and yet still be facing the judgment of the one true God. What then will we have accomplished? Peter's writing to Christians here that are in a cultural context, not unlike the one you're in right now. Many ways different, but in fundamental ways similar. Uh, like us, they were, they were living in a culture hostile to their faith and their morality and their values. Like us, they were answerable to a government that was not sympathetic to their faith. Their government was really not sympathetic to their faith, right? They were being actively and seriously persecuted, many of them losing their lives for their faith. Uh, like us, they were living in a world that was facing the future judgment of God. And Peter is writing to these beleaguered believers 
to encourage them. And, and he now, through the Spirit, centuries later, encourages you. We need to hear the same word of encouragement. Let me give you the bottom line here. I'll, before I preach the sermon, I'll give you the bottom line. Um, if you're connected to God through faith in the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus, okay, that's the if statement. If you're connected to God through faith in the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus, everything in this disorienting life is under control and nothing in this disorienting life can destroy you. Therefore, you are free to think, speak, and act in a way that is in sync with Jesus and demonstrates to a watching world the reason for the hope that's in you. I'll repeat that. But this, I mean, if you get this, this, I think, is the central message that Peter's communicating. If you are connected to God through faith in the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus, everything in this disorienting life is under control, and nothing in this disorienting life can destroy you. Therefore, you are free to think, speak, and act in a way that is in sync with Jesus and demonstrates the reason for the hope that is in you. So let's unpack this text, this difficult text, under three headings. First, Jesus has brought you to God. Huge, important, fundamental truth. Jesus has brought you to God. Speaking to those of you who are Christians. Second, Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. Three, you can't go over or around Jesus. Okay, so Jesus has brought you to God. Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. And you can't go over or around Jesus. That's the outline. So first, Jesus has brought you to God. This is verse 18. One of the most loaded, theologically loaded verses, I think, in the New Testament. Maybe it will help to unpack it, verse 18, by thinking about one of the world's great novels, uh, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. In that story, Sidney Carton is a lawyer who bears a striking resemblance to his friend, Charles Darnay. Charles Darnay is in prison and awaiting execution in France. He's going to be executed by the guillotine. Sidney Carton, out of love for his friend, hatches a plan to save him. Uh, He has him drugged, Darnay is drugged, has him carried out of prison uh, to freedom, to his wife and to his children, Uh, while simultaneously and remarkably, uh, Sidney Carton assumes his friend's identity in prison, so it's as if he never left, right? Uh, And he's able to do that, of course, because of the resemblance uh, and in the end, Sidney Carton, spoiler alert, but that's okay, the book's a couple centuries old. Um, Sidney Carton dies in Darnay's place on the guillotine. Um, and you probably have heard Carton's final words before. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. I mean, those are powerful and moving words. And, and the story still to this day moves readers. It's, it's moved readers for generations. And the reason it has moved us so profoundly is that it, it's about sacrificial love. And sacrificial love is one of the most important powerful forces in the universe. Not only one of the most powerful forces in the universe, it's a, it's a powerful force that is very near to the heart of God, right? God loves with a sacrificial love. So when we, when we read these stories, it gets us close to the heart of God and that moves us. Carton's love, think about this, Carton's love for his friend, Darnay, was 
first, penal, right? In that, in, in that it paid a penalty, right? He, he was in prison uh, and he had a penalty to pay and, and so, so the, his love was penal. It paid a penalty and it was substitutionary, right? He paid the penalty of another. Carton wasn't paying his own debt. He was, uh, he was his own penalty. He was paying the penalty of his friend Darnay. Now that's two of the three realities that describe Jesus' love in the gospel in verse 18, right? Jesus' love in the gospel is penal. Where does it say that? Christ also suffered once for sins. It was penal. Jesus died to pay the penalty for sins. But the truth is, right, that they weren't his sins. They were yours and mine. So, so Jesus' death was substitutionary. Where does it say that? The righteous for the unrighteous. It wasn't, and it, so it wasn't just anybody sort of substituting for us. This is Jesus the righteous, right? The, the, the God-man who had no sin. He takes your place. He, he takes your place and, and, and you are unrighteous and I am unrighteous, right? And we deserve the justice we are getting, but Jesus substitutes us out anyway and puts himself in. But the one thing that, that Sidney Carton couldn't do for Darnay, that Jesus did for us, was atonement. That's a, you know, a biblical word. Think, break it down, even in English, it kind of makes sense. Instead of saying atonement, say at-one-ment. Because that really gets at what atonement is. Atonement is, is bringing you to God. It is making you one with God. Um, it's, it's breaking down the, 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 the walls of hostility or whatever it is that's separating you from God and bringing you to him in a reconciled way. That's atonement. Carton could bring Darnay to his wife and to his children, but Jesus one-upped him, right? Jesus, by his substitutionary, his penal substitutionary death, atones for our sins and therefore brings us to God. And, and notice what it says, right? He, Jesus brought us to God. Just again, notice the gospel thrust there. Um, if you're here and you're thinking that Christianity is a, is a teaching that teaches you how to get to God, teaches you what you need to do to, to, to bring yourself to God and be acceptable to God, then you, 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 you have to re- engineer your understanding of Christianity, right? Christianity is that Jesus does what it takes to bring you to God. And then he actually brings you to God, right? So put, put all that together. What do you have? You have penal substitutionary atonement. And that's a, that's a phrase you use in seminary. I learned in seminary. That, that, that the gospel is all about penal substitutionary atonement. And, you know, you read books about it and you go to lectures about it and Peter describes it in one verse. And it's wonderful. Um, uh, and, and, what, what's, and so you may be asking, well, so what? what? What's so great about penal substitutionary atonement? Well, it means you, if you're a believer, have rock-solid confidence that you're on good terms with God right now. That God is for you and not against you. That, that you are a, a, a friend of God. Right? All of that is accomplished by penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus made it happen. He suffered once for sins. Nothing else to do. Never to be repeated. And in a time of uncertainty and fear like we're living in, this is a good thing to remember you have been definitively brought to God and you are reconciled to him. He's for you. Peter wanted his readers to hear that. He wants, and the spirit wants you to hear that. But one more thing, because he doesn't stop with just the death. He goes on. Uh, you know, Jesus didn't just die for you. He was raised for you. And that's what 
going on there at the end of verse 18. We're talking about Jesus, Peter says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, don't read that as I think a lot of people do to say, okay, I understand Jesus was a human being. He was put to death as a human being, uh, uh, but then made alive spiritually. That, you know, that, that his body's still in the grave, but his spirit or soul was, was, uh, was raised and, uh, you know, and whatever that looks like, but, you know, it's ethereal, ghostly. No, that's, that's not the point here, right? Um, what do we confess when we say the Apostles' Creed? We say we believe in the resurrection of the body, right? And the reason we believe in the resurrection of the body is that's what happened to Jesus, uh, right? We know that, that Jesus' body was raised, but what Peter is saying here is that his, his body was put to death in a fleshly way on the cross, but that body was then made alive by the Spirit. So, so now he's, it, the, that body is animated by a whole new thing. Our bodies will be animated by a whole new thing, right? Je- Jesus was in a spirit-transformed, spirit-glorified, perfect, never-to-be-sick, never-to-die-again body. Now, the resurrection of Jesus was, as to Jesus, a vindication, right? That was God vindicating Jesus. I'm, I, I accept what my son did. He did it perfectly. He accomplished his mission of that penal substitutionary atonement for his people. And therefore, I raise him from the dead in vindication of what he accomplished. But it's also more than that. It's also Jesus charting your future. It's a, it's a picture of what ha- will happen to you if you're connected to him by faith. You die in faith and you are raised to spirit powered eternal life right in a in a spirit transformed spirit glorified never to die never to get sick body and that's why i we we say that what one of the things that peter's fundamentally communicating here is that nothing in this world can destroy you you know they were they were you know facing the power of rome they were facing the Colosseum. They were facing the, the wild beasts and the, and the gladiators. And, and Peter says to them, nothing in this world can destroy you. Now, we're not facing that in America, but we are f- facing opponents for our faith. And it is good to be remembered that nothing in this world can destroy us. Right? Why? Which is why you and I don't have to f- be afraid of anything, right? Even if we are killed for our faith, right? The, w- the worst thing that happens to us, we're killed for our faith. What happens? We rise to new, eternal, spirit-transformed life, right? So take courage, Christian friends, right? Why, you, you know, like, what, like what does the psalmist say? What can mere mortals do to me? The answer is a lot. They can do a lot to you. They can even kill you. But they can't destroy you. Right? Couldn't keep Jesus down. And if you're connected to him by faith, even death won't keep you down. Okay, that's the first point. All the implications of being brought to brought to God by Jesus. Second, Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. This is verses 19, 20, and 21. And, and I, as, after I wrote that, I, I should really have added that the flip side is also true. If, if the certainty that Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead, it's also a certainty that he's going to save his people through that judgment, Okay. This is where now, I mean, I, I don't have to tell you if you, were, if you listen to my reading, right? You hit verses 19, 20, and 21. All of a sudden, you're scratching your head going, what? Right? What is Peter saying? What does this mean? Uh, this is murky. And, and this, uh, you know, and you, the, the, the questions just multiply. We, we dealt with them, some of them, 
in the uh, Q&A today. Who are these spirits in prison? Uh, how did Jesus proclaim to them? When did Jesus proclaim to them? What did he proclaim to them? Uh, where uh, did he proclaim to them? Um, I did a lot of reading I, uh, in preparation for this sermon, and oh, you can't believe the amount of ink spilled on verses 3, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Um, and the, the bottom line is theologians I respect and trust come down uh, on v- in very different places on this. Um, and uh, so it seems to me the bottom line is we have to approach this with a great deal of humility. And I also just want to remind you, in case you're out there and you're saying, well, see, the pastor is just affirming my view of the Bible, right? That the Bible is is not clear. The Bible is full of errors, full of uh, obscurities. Uh, Nobody agrees on what it means. Uh, So how in the world can you base your life on it? Uh, listen, if, that, if that's how you're thinking, you need to hear me here. And, and, I, and, and if you're a Christian and that concerns you at all, please don't be concerned. And wh- I, I, I really s- s- actually went after this in seminary. And because, you know, in seminary you have this, all this time. It was a great time to, to, st- to study the word. And I wanted to take on those these difficulties right the 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 difficulties that people always point to that are critics of christianity as to why we can't trust the bible and and i will tell you just bottom line one of the things i learned is that not one of those so-called difficulties in the bible and they're real but they don't they don't touch any of the central truths of our faith they don't at all they all deal with tangential details. And, um, it, and, it, and w- where there might be misunderstanding or there might be different understandings of those details, they don't affect the, 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 the overall storyline. They don't affect any of the fundamental truths that are over and over and over again specifically and concretely affirmed in scripture. You can have confidence in the Bible. You know, these, these sections come along once in a while and it's, these are details, um, interesting details, but just, but just details. And I, I, so let me give you what I, what there, as I read it, there are two main takes on, on what Peter's saying here. One started with origin way back in the day. Uh, early church father, is that Jesus, sometime between his death and his resurrection, descended into hell and proclaimed, either preached his preached the gospel, it doesn't say that, or proclaimed something, maybe proclaimed his victory over sin and death to his enemies. And some say those enemies are demons that were operating in the days of Noah. Some say those enemies were people that rejected uh, God's grace in the days of Noah. Um, I think what commends that position is that probably you probably come something close to that just on a surface read of of the of the of the text. Um, Augustine proposed a, a second position, which really has become the prevailing position. Uh, this the most most scholars take a version of this position. And, and this is the one I favor. Um, and and it, it, it takes a more nuanced reading of both of this text and a more nuanced understanding of context. Um, but what this position is, is that what Peter is saying here is that, is that Jesus preached back in the days of Noah to the spirits who were now in prison. And you go, well, how did, how did Jesus preach back in the days of Noah? He did it through his, the spirit, right? Jesus hadn't come yet in the flesh, but he was existing. And, and, and this, it was the spirit uh, of Christ through Noah that preached to those 
people uh, who then rejected the message and are now in prison. Uh, uh, read hell uh, for their uh, for their rejection of of God's grace. Um, now, I'm sorry. I, 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 in the first hour, I said we can go to the Q and A and talk about this more. We, we're not going to do that here. We're not going to have another Q and A. Here's the point. I, I I think you know cut through either of these positions. I, um, what's Peter trying to do here? Peter is writing to and trying to encourage believers in a tough place, right? They're a small, beleaguered minority. They've got powers all around them. Their existence is threatened. They're, right, they're, they're in a lot of trouble. They're suffering. Um, they don't know if they're going to, you know, make it. And, and so what Peter does is reflect back on another time that's comparable. He's, he looks at his Bible and goes, when, when have believers been like this before? And he goes, ah, the days of Noah, right? You talk about believers in a t- tight spot. I mean, there weren't many. Uh, there, there was, uh, they were, it was basically Noah and his family, right? A, a tiny ridiculed uh, minority. And, uh, and Peter is saying, in effect, look, even in Noah's day, the message got out and the message was powerful and the message was effective. Some were saved, some were, some were judged. Saved, some were saved by acceptance of the message, some were judged by rejection of the message. And Peter's saying, look, it's still true today. It doesn't matter that you're small, that you're a ridiculed, persecuted, marginalized minority. It doesn't matter that you don't have a lot of power as the culture defines power. He says, what you have is a message. What you have is a proclamation. You have a, an announcement of something that happened in history, really happened in history, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for you. And people are, and that, and that message is true, and people are either going to be saved by it or judged by it, depending on whether they accept it or not. So it's powerful, it has serious consequences, right? The tough circumstances that they are in, the tough circumstances that you and I are in right now, don't mean that we go down with the culture, right? Noah didn't go down with the culture, There's going to be, there is coming, serious, big-time judgment. That's the fundamental human problem, right? That's that's the God problem. That's why this should be our priority. But the good news is we have a perfect, gracious, God-offered, God-made, God-driven salvation, which must be embraced by faith. And it's effective. It does its work. That's what Peter's saying. It's okay. It's okay. And then, right, and now going back to Noah and thinking about Noah, I guess it was the water of the flood, the judgment, all that rain that led Peter to consider the water of Christian baptism. And he, and he, sort of, and he makes a connection between uh, what, what happened in Noah's day with the f- judgment flood and what happens in baptism. Um, it, uh, another murky area, right? He's not trying to lecture us on baptism here, on the you know, sacramental theology. That's not what Peter's doing. And, and it get, has given us a lot of heartburn over the years, especially Presbyterians, uh, because he says in verse 20 that baptism now saves you. Right, which is something. If you've been here at, at, for any length of time and watched um, me perform the sacrament of baptism, I will often remind you that that the application of water in baptism does not automatically regenerate a person. It's, it's right. Bat, 
we reject the notion that of baptismal regeneration. That if you just go through the motions and and you know lay the water down in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that that person who receives that baptism is saved. He's good to go. No, that's not true. So, so you have to interpret what, what Peter says here, and right, again, in the context of things he says elsewhere in larger scripture. I think what he's saying, though, again, is pretty clear. He's saying Noah and his family were, verse 20, saved through water. See that? Not by water, saved through water. They weren't saved by the water, right? The, the water was the instrument of God's judgment. Uh, the, the, those who rejected God's truth, rejected God's grace, uh, when his patience finally ran, uh, received judgment. And, and the water was the instrument of God's judgment. Noah and his family were saved from that water, right, by the ark. The ark that, the, that God gave him the plans for, the ark that God ordered Noah to build, the, the ark that... The, that uh, God uh, enabled Noah uh, to build. The ark, the door of which God closed behind Noah and his family when they got in, sealing them in, um, guaranteeing their safety in the flood. So the ark floated them out of God's judgment, you know, floated them through the water that represented judgment. And now, and then Peter goes to baptism and, and says, you know, in a similar way, the water we put on a person doesn't save them. In, in, right? and, he, and he makes that clear. He says, it's not the, it's not the water. It's not the, the water that, you know, that is effective because it cleanses the body. It's, it's, not, a, it's not about the water. In fact, he's, he's saying, you know, the water represents judgment. So th- this is interesting because, uh, again, you've, if you've heard my baptism explanations, you know, the symbol- symbolism of baptism is rich and, and, and the elements of, of baptism can, have, can carry different connotations, right? So Peter is reminding us that the water of baptism can, can be symbolic of God's judgment. I normally think of it that way, and I normally don't explain it that way. But I do. I have said right that there's the symbolism of going underwater. Water for the for the Jew was chaos, death, and and then coming out from the water is to be is to rise a new life. I'm sort of getting there. The, the, there is a water signifies judgment in baptism. Um, it also signifies. Right, the, 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 the salvation, right? It's also a picture of the blood of Jesus that, that we are covered in if we believe in him and that, and that blood protect, you know, protects us from the judgment. So the, the point here that Peter's making is, look, it can't be baptism that saves you. You need, you need if Noah needed a grace-provided ark to get through his water, we, you and I need a grace-provided ark to get through the, the judgment water of baptism. And that ark is Jesus. Right? Um, Peter says it. Baptism is, at the end of the day, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm baptized Give me a good, I'm appealing to you because I have a good conscience now. Why? Because Jesus died and was raised. Right? So even though I'm unrighteous, his blood forgives me, it covers my sin, and, his, and, I've, and, I, and, and he gives me his holiness. So Father, I am standing before you in everything that that baptism symbolizes. I'm forgiven and I'm holy. And, and therefore, uh, I come to you in a good conscience. What a, what a gift, right? A good conscience is. And a lot of us struggle with it. I struggle with it. Because you know, why? Because we're sensitive. We know our sin. 
And we often think that God, you know, God keeps not going to deal with us. God hates us. God's impatient with us. God, you know, I keep wondering, you know, when, when is the, you know, am I, what, what sin of mine is going to be the straw that finally breaks God's back? And, and, uh, and the answer is he already broke his son's back for my sin. I have a good conscience before him because of Jesus and so do you. Jesus brought us to God and it's all by grace. Let me just remind, you know, as I was thinking about this, another, uh, another biblical image, another biblical episode came to mind that might, might encourage you and, um, in this, in, in remembering this and thinking about, about how Jesus is our ark, uh, that saves us through judgment. Um, Think about Moses, Moses, the great prophet, Moses, who, who in a very profound way prefigured Jesus, right? You know, the Old Testament predicted the Messiah and the Messiah was called the one who, the prophet who was going to be like Moses, right? So, so when we look at Moses, there are, there are profound prefigurements of Jesus and so think about Moses and think about very early in Moses' life. Think about Moses' birth. Moses in his birth was, in fact, just like Jesus, right? Because he was born under a death edict. He was born after Pharaoh had issued an order that all, that all Hebrew male children were to be killed. And um, uh, his mother, Moses' mother, disobeyed that order, Right? and made a little basket of bulrushes and hid her son in that basket of bulrushes and floated him in the Nile River where he was ultimately recovered by the royal family, right? Pharaoh's daughter uh, and, and saved. What, what you need to know is that reed basket, that basket made out of bulrushes is called in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the same word, same word describes that basket as is translated ark in the story of Noah, right? He, was, he, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't floating on the Nile in a, in a basket. He was floating on the Nile in an ark. And we're meant to see that, right? It's, again, this, Moses is the one who's prefiguring Jesus, and it's, and it's showing us that this one who's coming, who's going to be like Moses, is also going to be the ark. He's going to be, he's going to be our ark. Saving us through the judgment of God. So, listen here. Uh, this really is my duty as a, as, a, as a minister of the gospel to say to those of you that it's an unpopular message but if you think about it, it's a, true, it's a true message and it's a necessary message. You know, life doesn't make sense unless, there's, unless at some point there's a reckoning, unless there's a judgment. Otherwise, nothing makes difference. Why not go rob a bank rather than work hard at your job, right? If, well, one of the reasons why those two things are different is that you're going to be judged by what you do, Right? Judgment is coming. And, and um, if you're outside the ark, you get to get caught up in the judgment of God. There's, just, there's no way through judgment outside of the ark. It's going to get us. right? It's, it, because we're not measured against uh, each other. right? If, if I measure myself against you guys, I come out pretty good. If you measure yourself against me, you come out pretty good, right? God doesn't work that way. We're, we're all measured against. And he never hid the ball. Jesus never hid the ball. You're, 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 we are, we are you know, judged against God's standards. And God's standards are be, And he has the... You know, that's God's prerogative. He made us in his image. It's perfectly appropriate for him to hold us to his standards, but we can't and don't meet those standards. We all stand in the way of judgment unless we're in the ark. So if, 
if I'm talking to you and you're not a believer in Jesus, I urge you to repent and trust in Jesus. Um, take his forgiveness um, that comes from his life lived for you and his death died for you. It's the only answer to God's judgment. God's judgment is a fearsome thing. His salvation is an amazing thing. Yeah, take it. Get, get in the boat while you can. Okay, finally, third and real quick. You can't go over or around Jesus. This is verse 22, last verse. Um, companies have org charts, don't they? You guys know that? Even churches have org charts. Um, and we have those for a reason, right? Org, char- org charts are important and necessary because they show us the lines of authority in the organization, which governs how we work, how we relate to one another. And one of the things relevant to you, you know, you, wherever you are in the org chart, one of the things it will show you is your one up, right? Your one up, the, the person immediately above you in, in the org chart. And one of the, and the way organizations work, right, is it, it's either a stated rule or an unstated rule. A lot of companies say we shouldn't have to state it. You, go, you have a problem, you have an issue, you go to your one-up first, right? And one of the, the most infuriating cardinal sins uh, of corporate life is when someone commits that sin, right, of going around his or her one-up or going over his or her one-up. It's infuriating. It's maddening. It, it compromises the way the organization works. But I understand it, right? Because they're, 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 they're drawn to the authority. They're drawn to the power. They, they're trying to get something done, uh, whether it's getting a vacation approved or a project signed off or whatever it is, and they want to go to the person that's got the most authority and power and so sometimes they're tempted to avoid the one-up. Verse 22 tells us here, when Jesus ascended, he was put at the top of the org chart. Right? Um, and it says all authority was given to him. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to Jesus. Right? Peter says angels, authorities, and powers were made subject to him. The, the point is, there isn't an authority or a power or a person on earth that uh, is not subject to Jesus, right? It's a pretty flat org chart. You got Jesus and everybody else. And they're all immediately subject to Jesus and because, right, Jesus is at the top, there's no appeal. There's no greater power. There's no greater authority. Um, right. So what this means, of course, is that all politicians, all parties, all bureaucracies, all terrorist cells, all demons, you name it, all are subject to Jesus. And, and, and because Jesus is so powerful and authoritative and he's right there above you on this flat org chart, he has the, he has the, the chops to and does control what you do. He assures that his will is accomplished by you or whoever is subject to him. See, what this means, of course, then, is our... what, what, see, what our, is that this out-of-control culture we're in only seems out of control to you and me in our, from our finite uh, perspectives. Right? God is... Jesus has it, every one of those powers and authorities that is disorienting our lives right now is subject to Jesus and they do nothing but his will. Now, I know that raises lots of questions and there are, there are mysteries here because we're dealing with this, with this incredible sovereignty of God. Because, and, and, right? Because terrorists do bad things. Politicians do bad things. People commit crimes. You know, am, am I saying that, that you know, th- those are God's will, that God is causing those people to do that? 
No. But I am saying that that God in his is powerful enough to subsume all of that and make it work for his good. And the best example of that, of course, is the crucifixion. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, points to the authorities and says, you, by unlawful hands, put Jesus to death. And it was all by the predetermined foreknowledge of God. They were morally responsible for their evil, but it all happened according to God's plan. Mystery there, but unbelievable power. So how do you summarize what Peter's saying here to, to the believers he was writing to, to you and me today? God's got this. He's got it. We, we may feel like things are out of control. We may feel disoriented. We may, we may be fearful. God's got this. And he is working out his purposes for your good. Friends, we're being confronted with these challenges today. I believe, uh, and I don't have a, you know, I don't have a, you know, hotline to God and know exactly what his, why he does certain things. But just based on what I see and, and the effect of what I see happening, is that, you know, we're being confronted with all these challenges: political, economic, medical, to refine us, to teach us to increase our dependence on, on the Lord, to loosen our grip on idols that we may not even known we've had, we had. I mean, I'm seeing that happen. Um, we're going to be, as, as individual believers, we are going to be as a congregation in the Church of Jesus Christ, stronger for the trials that God puts us through. So, close with this i'm going to just i'm going to close by telling you saying to you what every angel says every what an angel says every time he shows up uh, uh on the scene in scripture what what does an angel say every time first words do not be afraid right or if the king james fear not um look don't be afraid god's got this okay guys amen let's pray Thank you, Lord, for your, uh, this difficult word, but thank you for the encouragement we have in it. Um, help us, Lord, to remember the, these encouragements and to trust you in the difficulties of our lives, uh, knowing that uh, you have saved us and um, we have nothing to fear. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton. Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.